I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Montag Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems as well as auto-steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Recently appointed as the chief of the NRCS, Terry Cosby is drawing on his multi-decade career in the agency to promote the conservation programs and services that are available to U.S. farmers. In addition, having grown up on a small Mississippi cotton farm, Cosby's well acquainted with the realities of farm life and the challenges of adopting new practices. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, we caught up with Cosby by phone to hear about how his childhood experience on the farm shaped his views on conservation, his goals for the U.S. agency during his tenure, his thoughts on the Biden administration's plan to have 30% of U.S. lands and waters under conservation by the year 2030, and much more. So my guest today is Terry Cosby. He's the newly appointed chief of the NRCS. And first of all, congratulations on your appointment. I understand you've been with the NRCS for quite a long time, and I'd love it if you could just give us some insights into your background and your time with the agency. And Julie, thank you for having me this morning. And I tell you what, it's been a it's been a quite a journey, and it's been an exciting journey. A little bit about my background. I'm from northern Mississippi a little uh, county called Tallahatchie County, a little town called Enid, about 500 folks, and my family uh, were farmers. And grew up on the farm and just learned a lot from my dad and my siblings as we grew up there. It was a small farm, and and in that time, we did a lot of this stuff by hand. Mm-hmm. Had a team of mules, and one of my jobs in the morning was get up and go find those mules. And a lot of times, they were hard to find. Or they, did, they were just a little stubborn, didn't want to come, but we finally got them, and then we'd get out and, and get going. So that's how we farmed until my dad was able to purchase a tractor. And so we used mules and tractors. And, and I still have that tractor to this day. So it's still running. I, it's one something that I really cherish. And I went to college there in southern Mississippi, a place called Alcorn State University. It is the first 1890 university in the country. And as you know, those are land-grant schools. And it, uh, when they first started out, they were for black students and, and and if you look at those colleges today they're, they're just so well-rounded and have a lot of different diversities working to the door to go to school there but I went to the 1890s college and I was an ag education major and also I went through the FFA program and uh, boy ag program and so I'm very familiar with that as a and that's what drew me to agriculture and being from the farm and also going to college and, and studied uh, education ag education thought about being a teacher but uh, some, some things uh, changed, and I had an opportunity to go to work for the Soil Conservation Service back in 1979 as a student out of Alcorn. I spent the next three summers and also a semester in what they call the co-op program, and I was able to do that. And, and going through that program, you were pretty much assured a job out of college. And so my first full-time job was back in Iowa. And after I was married, after my wife and I were married, we uh, we settled there and started the process 
I spent my first 15 years in Iowa working my way through the system uh, from a so from the lowest level of this agency of the GS2 that started there, and then just started working my way, getting promoted. I uh, went through several different chairs, went through the district conservationists that those other folks that work at our field office level and run those field offices out there for us, and left there and went to. Uh, another part of the state and worked at an area office that had about 15 counties provided assistance there. And like I say, stayed there 15 years until I uh, went to Missouri and spent about 10 years in Missouri in several different positions. And from there, I went up to the state office in Missouri and I ran the operations in Missouri there kind of as the deputy. And after 10 years in Missouri, I got, a, I got the call to go to Idaho. Oh, Mm-hmm. And I went to Idaho as the deputy director, uh, deputy state conservationist, and had an opportunity to run that operation for for some time. And during that time, uh, I was asked to go to New Hampshire. I spent uh, uh, a little time in New Hampshire as the state conservationist. I was the acting state conservationist, but I, it was a significant amount of time. And I also worked in Washington, D.C. on different projects throughout the years. And from that, I was able, uh, back in 2005, uh, I was able to come here as a state conservationist. And I've been here for a little over 16 years. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's been quite a journey, uh, a lot of support from family. And I will tell you that uh, there's, there's, I have two other brothers that also worked for the agency uh, back at that time. Um, I have a brother who was a state conservationist in Wisconsin and Georgia. My brother uh, passed away as the state conservationist in Georgia, um, and and then I have another brother who has retired and no longer works for the agency. Uh, he's been retired for I think almost almost ten years now, and he lives uh, with his family down in Houston. So there were three boys that left the farm, and and uh, after we saw my dad, and we wanted to be connected to agriculture, but we know that uh, small scale farming at that time, especially the way we were doing it. It was almost impossible to make a living doing it. So uh, we, we found another avenue to help. And it was always an interesting time for us three boys to go home and talk to my dad about conservation and working the farm because we would make him so mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh-huh. Because here we are, we, you know, we've gone, we've got this education, and we're out there talking about, how to take care of this land. And my dad had been farming for all his life. And so you can imagine it was an interesting conversation. You know, he, he'd been doing it for 40 years and he knew everything about farming. Yeah. No, dad, that's not, that's not the way to do it. Here's what we suggest you do. And so we, we'd always find a happy medium, but it, it was always fun to watch this conversation. I was a youngster because my brothers were a lot older than me. And so I always watched this. And so I, you know, I put in my two cents, but it, it was always fun to go back and talk to dad. Oh, that's great. Did he ever take your suggestions? Some of them. Yeah. Uh, he was a little hard headed on some of them, and he, but he did take some. And uh, but it, it was always a interesting conversation to to talk to Dad about farming and, yeah. and and the techniques they were using, and then you know, and the techniques that we were trying to talk about and 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 use across this country. So yes, it was a it was an interesting conversation. Yeah, and that was a cotton farm, right? Yes, and, my family were cotton farmers. Yeah, and is it still in the family today? Still have the farm. Um, It's not not a production farm, right? Well, I shouldn't say it's not a production because there are trees planted 
Um, and but uh, we we have held on to the farm, me and my siblings, and uh, something proud of uh, you know through three three generations. Uh, very proud of it, and uh, but it's uh, it's there and uh, somewhere that I call home. Yeah, and I'm curious, uh, what were some of the techniques that you wanted him to change? Well, you know, we, we, we've talked about contour farming. You know, we're in the hill country there oh, okay. and, and where we are. You know, a lot of that county is Mississippi Delta, mm-hmm. but we ended up in uh, right off of the uh, plateau there, and we were up in the hills. And so, you know, Dad, let's go around the hill instead of up the hill. Oh. Um, and so, you know, we were doing a lot, doing a lot of this with my mules, and sometimes the mules, they didn't listen. They just <laughs> took, took, <laughs> took the, shortest, the shortest route, so I had to go back and do some things. Yeah. And, and you know, from from herbicide use to you know pesticide use and 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 wasn't a lot of money, so had to be creative on how I did some of those things and and also the rotation. You know, let's not put cotton this year. Let's seed it down. And so a lot of the techniques that we're using today, we were talking to him about. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm kind of curious how you, how that experience growing up on that farm shaped your views on conservation. Well, it it had a big effect, and and I tell you, it had a big effect on me because some of the things that that you're seeing happen now from the racial justice side, some of these things happened years ago, and we're talking about it today. It would have been great if we had fixed it back then. Sure. But now we're we're trying to fix some things that happened years ago, and and as I you know, my father was one of those uh, black farmers in in Mississippi, and had a tough time going in and getting service. Mm-hmm. And and I and I was with him when when these things were happening. Didn't understand all of it at the time. I was a young man, you know, ten, eleven years old. But he finally had to stop farming because he couldn't compete. You know, we were doing everything with with mules and small equipment. And by the time you know I had the mules caught and ready to go to the field, the farmer that had the tractor, you know, we had forty acres done, and here we are just starting. And so it was hard for it was hard at that time for folks to make a living and 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 be competitive. Because by the time you got your product to the buyer, the prices were low, and it, it was just one of those things. He ended up having to just stop doing it, and that was a sad day for him when he had to stop farming because that's what had been in his family for years and in his DNA uh, for years. And so just watching some of that and now just knowing that his son has an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of so many people. Mm-hmm. To make sure that we're providing service and make sure it doesn't matter who walks to the door or who we see out there on the land, we need to provide that service, whether they live in town or live on a farm. We have to provide that service, and so that's something that i I'm telling my folks is is that hey, let's just make sure that we're delivering uh, what we have to offer to everyone that wants to work with us, yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So I'm curious, besides that, what's, what are some of the goals that you are interested in? What, what are you hoping to accomplish as you take the reins at NRCS? Well, you know, we're building on a great successful agency. You know, we've been in existence for 80 years yeah. and 80 plus years. And so we're just continuing to build a lot of great folks across this country, a lot of great skill sets, looking at all landscapes. And, and we have a, we have a lot of things out there we have to do, you know, from the wildfires in the West to the drought situation out West uh, to the flooding system situation down South. Uh, we got Chesapeake Bay. We got the Great Lakes. So we have a lot of priorities that we're trying to work on. And, and through voluntary conservation, uh, it is working. 
um, you know, working with my agency and Farm Service Agency and all of the 20 agencies on the USDA, you know, we can make a difference across this landscape with what we have to offer. And so, my folks, we're going to continue to to work on these farm bill programs and and administer the farm bill programs. And a big part of that is a lot of times we forget that a lot of folks are not looking for money. They're looking for technical assistance. Come out and talk to me. Write me a conservation plan. Talk to me about this. You know, I can do this on my own. And so I think we forget about that's a big part of this is the, is the technical assistance that our agency provides. Um, and but yes, we and then when we when we provide that technical agency, sometimes we're able to say, hey, we have a program that we can assist you with incentives to put this practice on the ground. And some folks say, hey, let's do that. And some say, I just want the technical assistance. I'll do it on my own. And so we we have both. And okay. so I just it, but the technical assistance is a big part of what we do. And then it could lead to some type of financial or incentive. Uh, to help get these practices on the ground. So that's something that I, that we're very proud of. You know, a lot of the things that we do out there, we, we, we talk about climate, we talk about climate change, we, and, and I think that we're going to be a big player in that uh, from a lot of the conservation practices that we're working with farmers on, from buffers to field borders to, to saturated buffers to, you know, to edge of field practices and also when we start talking about uh, some of the conservation practices like no-till and and cover crop and and some of those things you know we have a lot to offer and i think we're just going to continue that i'd like to ask you real quick about the 30 by 30 conservation plan this aims to have 30 percent of u.s lands and waters in conservation by the year 2030 and currently we only have about 12 percent in conservation and, of course, some farmers have expressed concern. Secretary of Ag Vilsack said the land isn't going to be taken from farmers and the focus will be on voluntary efforts and incentives. Um, so I'm just curious, where do you see the biggest opportunities for reaching that goal? It's a big goal. Mm-hmm. It is a big goal, but it's reachable, it's attainable. Um, you know, we're, we've been asking the public uh, on help us with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've been working on a definition of, of what this means. It's under the America of the Beautiful. But uh, we are working on it, uh, on the climate agenda. And, you know, one of the things we have to do is we have to quantify uh, the practices that we're putting on the ground. How do they count? Mm-hmm. And we have a team of folks that's looking at that. And the secretary uh, has made it very plain, you know, and it's voluntary. It's voluntary conservation. It works. And uh-huh. so if we can get this information out to the producers and we've seen the, and they respond, I'll tell you what, we have some very responsive uh, folks across this country. You know, when we put it out, put put stuff out and say, hey, this is what we're working on. These are the things we think will work. Producers respond, and they've done this all over the last past 80 years, working, for, working with USDA and NRCS especially. And so we're going to continue to do that. We're going to be making sure that folks understand what we're trying to accomplish. And I think we have an attainable goal, and we're working on it pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I this makes me think of the, the recent focus on carbon, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the efforts to boost carbon sequestration on agricultural lands and the government's role in either establishing or regulating carbon credits in the marketplaces. What do you think? Should the government establish a marketplace, or should it be left to private industry? Well, I tell you what, and, and I'm not going to try to sidestep this, but you know that's something that we're talking, we've been discussing and talking about. And right now, 
and I'm, I'm not sure that we're ready to answer that. Okay. It's been it's been debated sure. uh, and, and talked about. But the thing that that's, that we're going to be doing at NRCS, my agency on the USDA, is we're going to be looking at these practices that 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 we're trying to install on the ground and try to quantify how that's helping with the things you're talking about there. And you know, we move from from cover crops to to no-till, to, you know, even the technology that is being developed when we're talking about vertical tillage and some of those type things, we are going to be quantifying how it contributes, and then we'll hopefully we'll be able to uh, have more information in the future on that. And then, you know, there's a lot of concern that, like, the carbon credit marketplaces are really basically greenwashing and doesn't, you know, they won't incentivize companies to make real reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. I'm just curious what you think about that. Um, and what sort of benchmarks maybe we should be using uh, to make sure that practices are actually having the intended effect? Well, we talked about before, you know, we, like I said, we're, we're in the midst of trying to quantify these practices, and, and we know they work. Sure. We, we, we've been doing this for a long time, and we know these practices work. And I know that, that a lot of this is going to be debated. We, we will probably be part of that debate. At this moment right now, I'm not at can answer that directly. Sure. Uh, we work, like I say, it, it, it is work in progress, and we are we are going to be working on this. And I know that uh, the public is really interested in and in how USDA and the administration is is going to be looking at this. And so it is it is top of the agenda. And I'm, I, what I'm asking is, is folks, if you have you want to have input, you know, get us the information, let us know what you're thinking, and so we can. Include that in the conversation as, as we try to build this agenda and see where we're going to go with it. We'll get back to Terry Cosby in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist. Offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts, Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Now let's get back to NRCS Chief Terry Cosby as he talks about the application process for the latest round of the NRCS's Conservation Innovation Grants. Do you want to tell me the story that you're announcing, uh, something about the Conservation Innovation Grants? We're announcing today uh, Conservation Innovation Grants which is a very important program. It gives individuals an opportunity to help us develop unique and tools, approaches, practices, and technologies. And people are able to do this out there across the landscape. And so we're investing about through these grants, and it's just going to help us with development of a lot of new technology. We have it open today, and it'll be open until July 19th, and individuals can submit proposals Mm-hmm. And in those proposals, they need to talk about the many things that they would like to do over the next two to three years. But there are some focus areas that we're really keen on this year, and there's four of them. One is climate smart strategies for water resources. The second one will be soil health. Thirdly, nutrient management. And then fourth, grazing lands conservations and strategies to increase conservation adoption. So those are the four key areas that we're trying to focus on for this $15 million. And we're hoping that we get a lot of people that want to work with us uh, to make an investment in new technology. 
Excellent. Yeah. And those are such important areas of to focus on, especially, you know, these days with the uh, carbon sequestration. So is there a dollar cap for any single project or are the people who are filling out the grants, are they uh, just requesting what they are looking for? They're requesting what they're looking for. Okay. And like I said, and what we're asking is a is a dollar to dollar investment and something that's uh we asking the people to do. And these are, you know, but every dollar that the federal government invests, we're asking for the grantee to also invest that dollar, whether it's through themselves or through, you know, partnerships that they forge with other individuals. And any individuals are eligible as well as non federal entities. Mm-hmm. So a group can come in with a proposal or an individual can come in. And so we're just hoping that we get a good uh, batch of these in so we can take a look at them and then we can continue to uh, develop, like I say, tools, approaches, the practices that we put on the landscape out there and also some of the te- techniques and technologies that uh, that's developing all over the country. The, the thing I want to stress is that, you know, we're a volunteer agency. And there's a lot of producers out there, farmers out there that are developing a lot of great technology. And we benefit from that because we're able to look at what they're doing. We're able to put that in our conservation standards that we develop to help us apply these practices to the land. And so there's a lot of innovation going on across this country, and we just want to know about it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So do you get more applicants for these kind of projects than there is money available? Oh yeah, any any time that we open any of our programs, we we normally are only maybe able to do about a third of the requests oh. that we have. So a lot of these programs are very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of we have a huge uh, funding request and demand. And what we do is we hope that the best applications, best proposals float to the top, and those are the ones that get funded. Yeah. Um, can you give us just a little insight into the evaluation process that the proposals go through? Yeah, there'll be a, a team of uh, folks that, that we'll put together. And like I say, that there's four areas there that we'll focus on. And we'll have some experts that sit on and look and say, okay, you know, yeah, that, that looks like something that we really need to know more about. That's something that we've been wondering about. And are there something that we need help with? And so those folks will review those applications and they'll be scored and ranked and then the best applications will move forward. Okay. And so what's the time frame in terms of when the applicants would hear back? Well, the deadline is July 19th and we're hoping later on in the fall uh, that uh, we will uh, know and then those uh, will be announced and people will work through that and then people will get going and so hopefully later on in the fall, we'll know who were successful and be able to work with those individuals. The information will be Conservation Innovation Grant. There's a website mm-hmm. that folks can go to and look at this. All that information is if there. You can do a look at the go to the NRCS webpage or the USDA West webpage. Uh, and there is a what we call a CIG website. Mm-hmm. And folks can get more information there if they're interested. So we're hoping that we have a lot of interest and hope and because there's a lot of innovation going on across this country and we just want to know about it. And then I'm kind of curious, I was looking at the website and is there some expectation that the projects funded by this program would eventually become sort of a viable product to sell in the open marketplace? Well, you know, what when we develop when people have developed this technology and when we get it, we we don't sell that. We we use it to help and and, and we're hoping that through this technology that is 
share it with other farmers or and maybe in the same community and some of those type things. So we, we, we just use the information that we gather and try to help uh, other landowners and other land users. And like I say, it helps us also because we're able to see what's happening across the country. Okay. Um, and then I also noticed that at least 10% of the awards are intended to go to historically underserved producers. So how does that work? How does that work in terms of evaluating the proposals? We will look at those and we have set aside that 10%, but uh, it could be more. We want to look at those proposals. And a lot of times when you start talking about the underserved, you know, we're talking about small scale farming. And and so we, we need technology to look at small scale. Uh, it might be vegetables. It could be uh, just little patches here and there. So we need to develop technology to help those folks also because they don't need that huge John Deere tractor or that big implement to go out there and, and farm. Or So we need to be developing technologies for all land users out there, whether they're big or small. And so I think that uh, it's going to help us with the underserved community, something that we're really stressing because, you know, when you get in some some of the areas like uh, in tribal areas or in some of the Hispanic or black communities, you know, there are some technology and different things that they need compared to the rest of the country. Okay. I guess just a couple of last quick questions. I, I guess I was just sort of wondering when you're evaluating the proposals and some of them aren't going to make it, like you said, you get requests for much more funding than you actually have available. But can you give some examples of things that would help make a proposal really stand out for you guys? Well, as, as I talked about before, you know, um, right now, climate is is important. The topic of climate and climate smart. You know, what are some of those maybe those unique practices or you think unique things you're doing out there on the climate front? When we talk about soil health, there are some things that that you're trying, you know, focus on carbon, maybe sequestration, or there are some new innovative things that are happening out there. It may be explain, you know, how you're doing it and what the benefits are that you've seen. Uh, nutrient management, you know, that's a big one. When we talk talking about feed additives, you know, uh, and we talk about methane and some of those things in feed, and, uh, you know, there there's a huge amount of work that needs done in the nutrient management arena. And then on grazing lands, are there some, some things you're doing out there from a pasture management standpoint, uh, variety of grasses that you're using, what's the, what's the gain on that herd? Uh, I mean, you can go a lot of different directions. These, these categories are very broad and we just want people to kind of take out of the box and, and we want to look at these techniques. We're going to talk about what works. And we also want to want to learn what doesn't work, also, mm-hmm. uh, so folks don't waste their time doing those things. So um, we, we, we're pretty excited about this. It's amazing some of the proposals that come in, uh, some of the things that people are trying, and some of the things that people want to try. And we want to we want to be involved in that. Just finally, the website that they should go to is um, nrcs.usda.gov. Is that right? Yes, and there's also a CIG website there. Uh, that folks can look at, and there's a lot of information. So I, I uh, hope they look at that and hopeful uh, that by July 19th, we're going to have all kind of proposals that covers the gamut of, of, of innovation. Okay, great. Well, Terry, this has been really great. I appreciate your time. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? No, just a uh, local USDA office service center in about every county in this country. 
Mm-hmm. We're hoping that the folks will learn more about us, the ones that don't know about us, and and the customers that we that come to see us every year keep coming. Uh, our doors are open. Love to see you. Love to work with you. And USDA has a lot to offer. Thanks to NRCS Chief Terry Cosby for this conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakeurlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs>